Welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Natalie Dignam. I'm in the studio today with Carl Slaney with Laurentian Legacy Tours out of St. Lawrence. Carl was a construction worker for 30 years before he volunteered with the St. Lawrence Historical Advisory Committee and became interested in the history of the area. Today, Carl leads guided historical hiking tours in St. Lawrence, Newfoundland. His tour tells the story of the Truxton and Pollux disaster, two American ships that sunk off the coast of Newfoundland during the Second World War, and the efforts of the local community to rescue the sailors. In the summer of 2020, Carl is offering a new tour that tells the story of the tidal wave, a tsunami that hit the St. Lawrence area in 1929. In this episode, we're going to delve into Carl's discoveries about the tidal wave tsunami and his ideas about this new tour. So welcome to the show, Carl. Thank you for having me, Natalie. I really appreciate this opportunity to talk about the disaster that hit the south coast in 1929. This, this event had happened 90 years ago uh, this year was a, a huge change for the communities of the Bjorn Peninsula. The disaster itself affected 40 different communities on the south coast and over 10,000 people. So the scale of this disaster was significant. The event triggered a change in St. Lawrence, where I'm from, from a 100% fish-based economy into almost the abyss, almost a situation where they lost their uh, infrastructure for fishing. The disaster modified the environment and changed the fishing grounds to the point that the fishery failed for a number of years, partnered with the, the Great Depression that began at the same time. So the town and the people really, really got transformed and until really 1933, when the mining industry began, the people were in dire straits. Um, it's really interesting that you mentioned how connected the community, what happened to the community is to what was happening in the environment and like the physical geography of the area, um, you know, with the tsunami and then kind of that how that has a domino effect affecting the economy and what people are able to do in their jobs. So really like a guided a hike is really like a fitting way to kind of explore the land and then also explore the history. I agree. Uh, in my endeavors to discuss history and some of the things that happened on the Bureau Peninsula, and particularly in my town, it's the environment that the people came to Newfoundland 400 years ago for the fishery. To use the uh, features of the environment, including the harbor in St. Lawrence, is a shapely harbor. The fishing grounds were relatively close. All these things environmentally was key to making a living and to living, and they did live very well uh, for up until 1929. And unfortunately, this disaster just took that opportunity away from these people. And this tour and the one that I do. Uh, to Chambers Cove, focusing on the Truxton and Pollux disaster, it comes back to the character of these people and their ability to respond to changes that, in many ways, were challenging, multiplied. In Newfoundland, generally, the Depression was a big problem 
for every community in Newfoundland. But these 40 communities really had that extra burden and the burden that really crippled many people. Many people left the peninsula. Many of these communities no longer exist. So the change was abrupt, instant. From five o'clock in the evening when that earthquake happened, 7.30 in the evening when the tidal wave hit, their world changed in those two and a half hours. And really, the impacts are still being felt today. So I've know that you have discovered some like firsthand accounts of the event and like the people who have lived in the area. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you found in your research. For sure. Um, in the research I began maybe four years ago, I began looking into this, uh, this piece of history and I would be uh, negligent if I didn't admit that I'm a student and not an expert of this history. But as a student of the history, I dug into some of the facts that I could discover through online searches and through interactions with Moen and with the folklore department. And obviously these days with the internet, there's a world of information available, but it comes down to piecing together and getting at the people and the stories of the people. And that was what I was really interested in. The science associated with it, obviously in 1929, the disaster happened. The country of Newfoundland at that time, we weren't part of Canada, but the country of Newfoundland didn't have scientific resources to go do investigations and those types of things. The needs were more immediate to get the people to a point of survival. But later in, in the time frame, up in the 50s, an awful lot of science happened to study and understand what exactly happened in 1929. In my research, I was hoping and I did discover a group of interviews that were done with the elders of the community. My favorite has to be a story that I discovered. It was an interview that actually my first cousin did. He was a folklore student here at Mon and he did an interview with my grandmother that I didn't know existed. And it was one of those things, the joys of a cup of coffee and the internet. I was just looking and I found a thesis done by a lady in Ontario who referenced a, a, a conversation with Sarah Slaney, who was my grandmother. I dug in a little bit more and got her reference material, got a hold to the folklore department. Through the library, they came up with a, a paper that was presented in 1975, done by my first cousin, Gary O'Driscoll. And by the way, nobody in my family knew this existed. Uh, Gary That's amazing. <laughs> Gary O'Driscoll now lives in Ontario and uh, we're kind of removed, but obviously we're related and first cousins. But when I got it, uh, I just became infatuated with this particular story. And the story, may I continue oh, yeah. the story? The story is the story of Sarah Slaney. She was uh, in her 20s, uh, the day of the disaster, like every day in those times. Five o'clock in the evening, she was up milking a cow. Just a few, maybe a hundred yards from her house, she had three children at this point, and one of them was my father. He was only two and a half years old. She's milking the cow, 
an earthquake hits, her world shook, literally. Shook to the point that the cow tipped over onto her. She pushed the cow off, and obviously what was her first concern was the concern for her family. So she made a dash back to her house to ensure that her children were okay. On the way, she met a man who taunted her and teased her, I guess, and told her, Sarah, the devil is going to get you. This earthquake, obviously, people didn't understand that it was an earthquake. They didn't understand anything other than their world was shaken. And Sarah's immediate concern for her children led her back to her house and found that the kids were okay and things the earthquake only lasted and the tremors only lasted a few minutes but obviously was significant you know the, the reports of teapots rattling on stoves and dishes falling and pictures falling off walls all that was what happened but then things settled down and when she checked on her children she came to peace with it but in other accounts in the same timelines People were fearful and people headed to the church, but Sarah had her kids to look after, so she stayed at home. As the interview progresses, there's a, she, she tells of her brother who come to visit her and check on her and see that she was okay. And things were normal, and her brother was um, a man named uh, Joseph Cusick. So Joseph was notorious for playing with the kids and those types of things, and that was what happened. He was just fooling around with the children, talking to his sister, seeing that things were okay, and it was a normal circumstance. In the interview, she says, they heard the roar, and this is the roar of the tidal wave. The water receded in the harbor, greater than ever before, and the roar as the sea came back into the harbor was what they heard. Her house overlooks the harbor in St. Lawrence. And her and her brother walked out onto a little bridge on the back of the house towards the harbor and could see in the moonlight, big full moon, beautiful evening, no wind. The moon was shining brightly down into the harbor and the white water that was caused by the swirling of the wave as it came into the harbor. This wave is on the order of 50 feet high. Sarah's house was fairly high. They were comfortable that they were going to be okay, but Joseph was the guy who knew he was in peril. His house also had three children. The house was probably about 15 minute walk away, but his house was directly on the ocean. When he saw the wave coming, he began, he left obviously in, in haste and headed towards his house. And I her story and another group of interviews kind of partners really well and I picture and I will tell in the tour about Joseph's trip up through the harbor to find his house gone when he got to where his house should be it was gone the ocean had taken it away but fortunately his brother had saw the water recede and took his Joseph's children up to a house that was further away from the ocean and his children were safe but his house was gone i was wondering i guess were there a lot of fatalities from the tsunami unfortunately on the bjorn peninsula this disaster cost the peninsula 28 people 
People were last in the communities of Lord's Cove, Allen's Island, Point Taylor's Bay, Port of Bry, and Kelly's Island. Like I mentioned, the, the communities was 40 different communities affected that were literally in the direct path of, of this tidal wave. It's sad, obviously, to see that we lost all these beautiful people and the impact on the community generally. There was 10,000 people in these communities. So it was a significant, more than significant storm, or not a storm, sorry. I guess it's an environmental feature that caused this. And in my thinking of how to present this from a history and from a tourism perspective, I won't dwell on these people's debts. I will look into and respect their their uh, demise, but focus more on the people generally and the community and their response to this disaster. And like in St. Lawrence, we were very fortunate that we didn't lose any people. But the number near misses and the, the what could have been is what I'm going to talk about on this tour and what I will focus on. Mm-hmm. Kind of the stories, I guess, of the, the people like Joseph who it was a close call for them. Exactly. And St. Lawrence at the time was kind of the one of the bigger communities. And a lot of these other communities fished and put goods into St. Lawrence. So there was a part of the economy of the day that some of these other communities were fishing for merchants in St. Lawrence. So they the, the situation in St. Lawrence and the geography, again, back to how the environment... St. Lawrence Harbor is a long, narrow harbor. It's almost a mile long. It goes from Cape Chapel Rouge to a place called Blue Beach Point, and it narrows down considerably. It continues another quarter of a mile or so to a place called Shingle Point and narrows down again. When the waves came into St. Lawrence Harbor, this funneling of the waves concentrated the focus and the strength on the east side of the harbor and literally, as the wave came in from the southwest, St. Lawrence Harbor runs north and south. So when the wave came in from the southwest, it was leaning towards the east side of the harbor. As it came in, it got further pushed east by Blue Beach Point. And again, as it come further into the harbor, Shingle Point again pushes it east. So it resulted in the wave and the energy coming in on the east side on the way in and cleaned off all the fishing infrastructure and buildings, stages, businesses, a cod oil factory and a couple of barns and a couple of dwelling houses on the way in. When it came inland, it went in 760 meters from the shore, from high tide mark. On the return, cleaned off all the fishing stages and buildings on the way on the east side on the way back out so it was a swirling motion as recorded in uh, many of the interviews in St. Lawrence and in some of these other communities mm-hmm. so the the harbor kind of acted as like like a funnel almost for the wave exactly that and in uh, I've got probably about maybe about 15 interviews in all these different communities, probably about eight or so from St. Lawrence specifically, 
because that's what I'm focusing on it is in St. Lawrence. Mm-hmm. But the common thing that's mentioned by the people who witness this is the swirling motion of these waves. And in reality, if you look at the geography of all these different communities, it tells the story of what happened. In little communities on the west side, like Taylor's Bay, Allen's Island, Point of Gaul, land is very flat. So when the wave came in, it hit with full force and took these buildings far inland, destroyed them with the power because it was a direct hit. In St. Lawrence, like I mentioned, it's a long and narrow harbor. So this funneling effect caused the weakening and took some of the energy out of the waves. Still a huge wave by any measure, but it was weakened by this funneling effect. It was weakened by Shingle Point especially, is a, is a narrow spit of land like a little mini peninsula in the harbor. So when the wave came in, it took some of the energy. And unfortunately, even these buildings and the fishing stages and houses that were destroyed consumed some of the energy. And the land in the end of St. Lawrence Harbor is relatively flat. So when the wave came in, it had somewhere to go. In communities like port de bra and Bjorn, the harbors are cliff. So when the wave came in, it literally came up against a cliff. And some of the damage is because it picked up a building and smashed it against a cliff. Or it came in and consumed buildings, had nowhere to go, and took the buildings to sea. So in some of the, these uh, accounts, many of these buildings were taken out to sea with people in them. Really? Did really. people like survive that? Yes, yes, some people did. Wow. Can I ask uh, how the community did like reacted after all of this happened? In St. Lawrence, and that's my focus, the events are, like I mentioned earlier, the earthquake happened at 5 o'clock. 7.30 is the beginning of the waves. It lasted for a couple of hours. So there was three serious waves and many multiples of smaller waves. But everything went back to normal in two and a half or three hours. So by about 10 o'clock or thereabouts, things goes back to normal or the new normal. These people who just got wiped out by a wave live by the ocean. Normal never came back, I guess. And there's accounts by people that say they lived their life watching that to see, aware of what damage it could do. And there's people that never ever got comfortable. And how would you expect them to? You watch that your neighbor's houses washed away and your fishing community destroyed and then got to go and live next to that for your lifetime. It's obviously was something that was hanging over these people's lives forever. And there's accounts of, you know, night terrors and not sleeping and those types of things, which is an obvious common, or, or it's an expected response. There's ladies, uh, one lady that... Uh, we call an aunt, but she wasn't an aunt, she was just a real close family friend. And she was in her 80s when the interview was taken, and it's still in her mind that she, as a young lady and a young girl going to school shortly after, had to walk across the beach to get to school, always with one eye on the sea. So, can you, you know, the, the stress associated with that, 
it must have been you know a, an extraordinary feature of that lady to have that inner life and to get past it and continue life and did the did the fishing um, economy ever like recover as much in this area like because did the tsunami really change kind of the fishing grounds there too that's another feature of what happened in the aftermath is that the tsunami changed the fishing grounds to the point that the fish didn't fishery failure for four or five years scientists say that it wasn't because of the tsunami Scientists say that it was because of a failure of the squid, capelin, and mackerel herring, all the bait fish. But the people would tell you, and I was a fisherman for early part of my life. I fished with my father for 10 years. And those guys would tell you that places like Little Sockove, which was a notoriously great place to fish, just failed to the point that even in my day, I fished in the 80s. And Little Sockle was a place that it made no sense to go fishing there. It's just, the old fellows would say, it just never came back in those locations. Mm -hmm. And it failed around Newfoundland, but in St. Lawrence and on the Bjorn Peninsula, it was just magnified because of this uh, event and the environment was changed probably forever. I'm hoping that uh, you could just talk a little bit about like the actual hike that you're going to take people on and kind of is it a different um, trail than you do for the Trucks and Impolix tour? So what I'm working on now for this tour is going to be a hike through the community and walk from place to place where Sarah lived and where Mr. Joseph Cusick lived and some of these other houses that were ripped from their locations and moved to give people an appreciation for a building that got picked up, a dwelling house got picked up and moved 500 meters. To see it on the ground, I think is gonna be of interest. It's of interest to me, obviously, but it's I've tried this. Even when I do the tour to Chambers Cove, I do mention it and we talk about it if people are interested and tourists and participants in that tour have been inquisitive about it and I'll continue back into the community and we talk about it and I show them some of the locations. That's what really gave me, uh, I guess, confidence that this will work. Again, knock on wood. But uh, the folks from, I guess, I'll use mainland Canada or mainland United States. They're not really familiar with the ocean. Are really, their curiosity is really piqued by this. And to understand and to stand and see a place, the harbor now is full, but to be able to point to a place where the waves receded way back to Herring Cove, the ocean receded back and the harbor dipped, decreased by 30 feet and left the, the harbor bottom practically bare. And then when a wave came in, it went in St. Lawrence, it went from where the high tide mark is way back to where the hospital is currently. There was no hospital in those days, but it's 760 meters from the high tide mark to where the debris field was. 
So are some of these houses that you were saying you're going to point out, um, like, where some community members lived, are these, like, the original buildings? One building in particular is is another of these beautiful stories that I found is the story of Elizabeth Quirk. And Elizabeth wasn't in St. Lawrence during this disaster, but she was a young woman living in St. Pierre. Her husband was in St. Pierre from St. Lawrence. She was from uh, in Fortune Bay, and the house that she lived in all of her life still exists, but it's one of these houses that got picked up, tossed five or 600 meters ashore, abandoned by a Mr. Malloy who owned that house at that time, salvaged by Elizabeth and her husband, moved to a different location in the community by the people of the community. And again, I think this shows the skills and abilities these days you can move a house because we got all this equipment those folks were builders of boats movers of houses with limited amount of material but a lot of will and a lot of skill and a lot of ability that probably today we would struggle with but these guys salvaged this house and in that story i can take people from where the old house was it got tossed five or six hundred meters inland then it got towed probably about 900 meters back to its current location and it's still being used today wow that's pretty cool um before we finish up is there anything else about the tour that you would want to share with people or about what you've discovered in your research as i go through this uh trying to get an understanding of these people and that's really what it's all about is about the people and the tour is going to be about the people the thing that really strongly comes true in a lot of the personal accounts and interviews of people that were firsthand is the faith and their faith got them through this. I bought a little book and it's a booklet about the disaster in Muddy Hole in Lameline. And it's a glaring situation where it's the story, it's, the book is called The Miracle of the Kerosene Lamp, Surviving the 1929 Tidal Wave by Clyde F. Barnell. And it's the story of Clyde's mother and a house that was picked up with four people in there. Mrs. Mrs. Heptage and three of her children were in a house. They got picked up. The lamp is the story. The miracle of the lamp is the story of the survival of these four people because of their faith and because they attribute the continuing burning of this lamp on a table while the house flooded, the lamp burned and stayed burning and gave Mrs. Heptich an opportunity to gather three of her children on the bottom floor of a two-story house. The lamp burned to the point that she could gather her children, make it to a set of stairs and get upstairs and the lamp continued to burn. The house got tossed all around in the ocean and ended up drifting to a point on its way to sea. It got hooked up on the beach and literally went aground. She and her three children ended up on the second floor in bed. The rescuers came guided by the lamp and were guided to the location. And these four people were survived. And it was attributed to the Lord and their faith 
that got them true and resulted in a fabulous story. And this uh, book is for sale at the Lamoline Museum. And it's one of them things that really shows the character of these people and the disaster in real person terms. And throughout these interviews and these stories, that's one of the things that comes to the forefront is that the people counted on their faith to get them through the night, but also the aftermath. Mm-hmm. And by working together as a community, these people survived. And I would purport that many people these days, including myself, in similar challenges, I'm not sure how I do. Yeah, yeah. It's a, um, it's a really interesting story, and it sounds like you have some really interesting personal accounts to go along with the tour. Uh, thank you so much for coming in today um, and sharing your research. Well, thank you for having me, and I really appreciate this opportunity. I really hope to share this story with the public and uh, mainly with some of the children that should know this story. And in our community, the story is practically forgotten, and I'd like to really make sure that it don't get fully forgotten. And so this tour about the tidal wave tsunami is going to be starting in St. Lawrence in the summer of 2020, and we're going to have a link to uh, the Laurentian Legacy Tours Facebook page online for listeners to learn more. You've been listening to the Living Heritage Podcast, a co-production of Heritage NL and CHMR Radio at Memorial University. You can find previous episodes on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. We're on Twitter at HFNLCA. Do you have a question or a suggestion about an aspect of culture and heritage you want us to explore? Send us your mail and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming show. Email us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Lache Swing. Thanks for listening.